RTHK News. Well, that wasn't supposed to be. That's coming your way at nine o'clock, just to keep you alert. But this is the one. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, healthcare, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the policy address and budget consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk, or call our hotline two eight one zero three seven six eight. Well, the subject of the news, of course, that do, does come your way at nine o'clock. After which, of course, Sunday smile with Candice Moore. And little friends as well. And after which, it's the second week. Uh, quite a new newbies they are, I suppose, uh, to that slot. Sunday Escape with Carolyn Wright and Paul Haswell. About around 9.30 all the way to lunch at uh, 1 o'clock. The weather, well, let's have a look at that again. Mainly fine and dry. A cool morning. A maximum of around 19 degrees expected. Temperatures apparently significantly cooler. Down to around 14 degrees in the urban areas after that over the next couple of days. And even colder in the new territories. Um, latest air temperature reading, we're 15 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity at uh, 70%. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Welcome to another episode of 28 Tech, your weekly update on some of the most interesting technology stories from around the world. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that every week we choose an industry and look at how technology is influencing it. This week, however, we take a slightly different view and look at the disruptive nature of technology itself. The, the, the quintessential example of this is the, the Apple products over the past decade, the, the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod, where there's just one button. And so, you know, back 20 years ago, uh, keyboards all shipped with the F1 key and software shipped with instruction manuals. And now if you have to read instructions on how to use a software application or a hardware device, you tend to toss it aside very quickly and usage does not go viral. That was Chris Haroon, a venture capitalist and professor at Holt International Business School. He'll be talking to me about some of the elements necessary for disruptive innovation and innovators to find success. He'll also help us understand how San Francisco became the tech hub it is today. And believe it or not, the Russians had something to do with it. Later on in the show, I'm joined by the Asia-Pacific Managing Director of one of today's biggest disruptors, Uber. So our tipping points just keep happening. And I think that's one of the things that we're surprised by is how every single place that we go, we find that transportation is a place where people want safer, more reliable, and to be frank, less expensive options. Uh, One of the great tipping points for Uber was in London when we went from being more expensive than a taxi to actually using uh, lower cost vehicles and being an option that was 40% cheaper than a taxi. That was Uber's Sam Gelman, who'll be joining me later on in the show. But first, let's get started with the roundup of this week's top tech news. Sony announced it was pulling the scheduled Christmas Day release of the film The Interview. The film is a political action comedy about two American journalists instructed to assassinate North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un. The decision comes after hackers issued a warning to the public, threatened to blow up movie theaters and said the world would be full of fear if the film was released. 
Ahead of Sony's decision to pull the movie, various cinema chains across the U.S. had already announced they would not be showing the interview. Sony has come under some criticism for its decision, but Bloomberg's Paul Sweeney says there may be a silver lining in this for Sony. You know, a lot of folks in the industry are saying, hey, this might actually, the, the silver lining here might be uh, Sony might have an opportunity to release via uh, an over-the-top online video services such as a Netflix. This might be a test case for Sony to perhaps, you know, launch a full, uh, um, you know, big studio film uh, directly via Netflix or some other uh, Amazon Prime or something like that. If, if for nothing else, to gauge how that market would, would react, would that be a viable business model for future theatrical films that go direct to consumers over the Internet? So, you know, <clears throat> the silver lining here might be that Sony might have an option here to go direct to consumers with this film. Because, again, I'm, I'm, sh I'm not really clear that, you know, this film could live in the home video market. Right. You know, would, would, a, would a Walmart want to put this movie in its, uh, in its stores? BlackBerry launched what it's calling a no-nonsense smartphone aimed at the company's core business users. After a challenging few years and a series of attempts to showcase creativity with distinctly shaped models such as BlackBerry Passport and the keyboardless Z10, the company is returning to its roots. The Classic has a full QWERTY keyboard and is expected to appeal to existing fans. Analysts say the new phone will probably help existing users from deflecting from BlackBerry, but will struggle to attract younger audiences who have only ever known touchscreen phones. Easy Taxi announced it is abandoning plans to launch the taxi-hailing app service in India and scaling back operations in Hong Kong and Indonesia. Founded in Brazil in 2012, the app is available in over 27 countries but has struggled to match the aggressive marketing budgets of rivals such as Uber and Grab Taxi. The Indian taxi app market is particularly competitive. Uber and local rival Ola have reportedly been absorbing costs and in some cases giving away free rides just to build up brand awareness and loyalty. In a statement made to TechCrunch, Easy Taxi said the app would continue to operate in Hong Kong and Indonesia as long as service levels were acceptable. Almost all of us have taken or conducted surveys at one point or another online. And chances are you've used the services of a Palo Alto-based company called SurveyMonkey. Well, although you might not have paid anything to conduct or participate in a survey, that company was valued this week at over $2 billion. SurveyMonkey's services are used by over 20 million users, ranging from individuals, community groups and schools, to corporations such as Kraft Foods and Yamaha. Although basic services are free of charge, premium users pay as much as $780 a year for packages that include unlimited responses, customer support and customized branding. Bloomberg is reporting this week that the company raised $250 million in funding that will help it pursue acquisitions and buy back employee and shareholder stocks. And finally, it's December, so it's that time of year when top 10 lists are drawn and companies tell us what was particularly popular over the past 12 months. Google told us this week that the top trending Google search of 2014 was Robin Williams following his death in August. The World Cup came in second as the most Google topic of the year, followed by Ebola queries. When it comes to asking Google for clarifications, we are too embarrassed to ask friends, colleagues or family. The most common what is query included Ebola, ISIS, ALS, Bitcoin and asphyxia.
The how-to category, on the other hand, was a little lighter and included how to apply makeup, vote, kiss, craft and share files. The most popular YouTube video of the year was a short film directed by a Polish actor and web prankster. The movie is called Mutant Giant Spider. And if you haven't seen it yet, head over to our webpage where we've uploaded it for you. Disruptive technology is defined by Wikipedia as an innovation that helps create a new market and value network, eventually disrupting an existing one and displacing an earlier technology. Although not every emerging technology will alter the way businesses operate or societies interact and people live lives, the speed at which today's innovation is created and made available to global audiences means there is more disruption than ever before. The relatively low cost of technology and the eagerness of venture capitalists to discover and invest in the next big thing make for a fertile environment. And nowhere else in the world is this more true than in the San Francisco Bay Area, where it seems almost everyone is innovating and trying to disrupt. Chris Haroon is a San Francisco-based partner at the venture capital firm Artis. He also teaches at the Halt International Business School. I asked him why he thought San Francisco was the innovation mecca it is and why no other place seems to match it. Well, I would say that San Francisco's vibrant tech industry wasn't built overnight. It, it actually took more than 50 years to develop, and it all started off with one seminal event, which was Sputnik. And what happened was, uh, in the late 1950s, Americans were brokenhearted because the Russians beat us to space. And as a result, the government here in the United States decided to start NASA. And NASA needed to uh, get the first rocket to the moon before the Russians could. And in order to do that, they needed to fit many, many transistors and processes in the fuselage or the top part of a rocket. And... In order to do that, uh, a company was created called Fairchild Semiconductor. And Fairchild Semiconductor was founded uh, by eight people here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and they won that mandate to supply chips to NASA. And NASA, of course, got the first person on the moon uh, before the Russians did. And then what happened was Fairchild a Semiconductor got too big and bureaucratic, which happens to most large tech companies. And out of it came Fairchildren, including Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, and other great chip companies. And then around the chip sector grew the hardware sector. HP flourished. The software sector then was introduced. Oracle flourished and other great software companies as well. And then around that came the Internet sector. Now, all those aforementioned companies were, were birthed between you know, the year 1960 or so up until you know, around uh, the year 2000. But one important cultural event occurred along the way, which was in the late 60s, there was the hippie movement at Berkeley, which was incredibly important uh, from a countercultural perspective. Uh, and so what happened was you had a lot of students at Berkeley who were rebelling because all they had known in their lifetime, in their parents' lifetime, was war. There was, of course, World War I with their grandparents, their parents in World War I, and then, I guess, in their lifetime, the Vietnam War and, um, and the Korean War. And so they pushed back. And these riots spread all the way up to Stanford. And what happened was uh, these universities uh, pushed a lot of the classified American government uh, weapons research off campus and developed a more open standards notion whereby information was shared 
just like there was the free love movement, so to speak, uh, at Berkeley, at Stanford and Berkeley, you had open source, the sharing of information. And so there is this notion and culture here in the Bay Area that it's cool to share information and it's okay to fail because if you fail, you just try again. Whereas in other regions of the country and other regions of the world, if you fail, it's shameful. So that Whereas actually here, people are more open-minded. That actually brings me to my next question in that in many regions of the world, as you mentioned, cities or areas are trying to recreate, they're trying to be either the next Silicon Valley or the Silicon Valley of their country. In Asia, for instance, we have Singapore, Taiwan, Seoul and Hong Kong, where we are trying to focus on being a tech hub, yet none of them come even close. So let me put it a bit different. What are they doing wrong? Yeah, well, I, I just think it takes time. So it, it, as I mentioned, it, it took Silicon Valley about 50 years to develop the fertile, you know, Tigers and Euphrates type uh, uh, technology crescent, so to speak. It takes a lot of time. And if it was just a notion of a couple of great schools like, you know, Stanford and Berkeley, then we would have an amazing tech center uh, in London with Oxford and uh, Cambridge, which, of course, we don't. And we'd have a superior tech center in, in Boston area with, with MIT uh, and, and Harvard, but we don't. Um, it's not just a matter of government incentives and educational programs, but it's more of a, of a, of a countercultural movement to the extent that there has to be some sort of cultural awakening whereby ideas are accepted and all people are accepted for their differences. And I can't think of another region in the world that has that type of acceptance compared to the Bay Area. Okay. In and addition... In the Bay Area, you had a flourishing venture capital industry, uh, which you don't seem to have uh, overseas. And my personal perspective is when you get too much government incentive, um, you, you tend to, to run into failure quite quickly. Interesting, interesting. And so speaking of failure, and today we're talking about disruptive or innovative technology. Have you seen any that had to turn around and were customers perhaps excited about the disruptive technology of the moment actually ended up abandoning it and reverting back to, to past practices? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question. We, we've seen a number of cases of that in the past. So timing is crucial in the technology sector. And, and probably a great example of that is Apple Computer back in the early 90s, where they released the, the first notable handheld computer, which was the Apple Newton. Um, which uh, had a lot of promise but was a spectacular failure at the time. It was just too early, and so people went back to pen and paper. And, of course, the Palm Pilot took off five or six years later. Yeah. In terms of the software and Internet side, uh, we've seen the timing off being off as well for a couple of notable companies, including Yahoo. Yahoo purchased Broadcast.com, which could have been the YouTube of its era, but they were just too early in addition, Yahoo purchased a company called GeoCities in the late 90s, which really could have been the, face, uh, the Facebook of their time. But again, they were too early. So I would say the bottom line is that timing has a lot to do with it. And if you're too early with respect to a technology trend, uh, then um, you tend to crash and burn pretty quickly. Now you say um, with timing, would you say things are changing now that we are entering the age of where digital natives are growing up and they are much quicker to adapt to anything new versus perhaps 20 years ago when we were still in that age where it took us a while to, get to we, we would try something out and say, yes, I like it or no, I don't and just put it aside. While the digital natives seem a lot more eager to try something new and, and insist until it works. Do you think that's going to change the way new technologies are being churned out? 
I think so. I mean, there, there's a new notion that less is more, simplicity is beautiful, simplicity works. And of course, the, the, the quintessential example of this is the, the Apple products over the past decade, the, the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod, where there's just one button. And so, you know, back 20 years ago, uh, keyboards all shipped with the F1 key and software shipped with instruction manuals. And now if you have to read instructions on how to use a software application or a hardware device, you tend to toss it aside very quickly and usage does not go viral. And so in the, in the age of, of Internet computing, all we know is the browser, which has a, a back, forward, home, refresh button, and that's basically it. Now, to compare and contrast 20 years ago to today, in the year 1994, we only had 15 million people on the Internet. Today we have about 3 billion and people were born digital uh, in this day and age. It's fascinating because a child in the middle of Africa has faster access and more access to information today than Bill Clinton did 20 years ago. And that's only going to accelerate as we get more uh, faster access through broadband. And that's a fantastic perspective. And I'll ask you one last question. Um, so we've seen disruptive technologies impact various industries, human resources with LinkedIn, communication with Twitter, Facebook, um, retail, Amazon and eBay. Now, you're a venture capitalist and you're in San Francisco. You see and hear the talk that's going on. And what would you say is the next big industry that is going to be shaken up? Well, I say there's two industries. The first one, which I'll quickly talk about, is the transportation sector. Of course, we know all about Uber, but we will see self-driving cars within the next decade. I already see them uh, quite a bit on the highways here. There are Google self-driving cars, which have had hundreds of thousands of kilometers uh, without incidents. Uh, and that's going to significantly help GDP growth in the long run, as uh, there will be fewer accidents and fewer delays in terms of getting people to work on time. Uh, the second sector, I would say, which we're just starting to touch upon is healthcare. Healthcare is a sector that hasn't yet been disrupted. As you go into your doctor's office, you'll still see a lot of doctors using antiquated notepads and filing systems, and they can't read their own writing. What we're seeing in the United States is, is a push by the Obama administration uh, to ensure that all doctor's offices are online within the next few years and all patient records. And there's one company that we've worked with called Practice Fusion, which is the largest electronic medical records company uh, in the country. And they're starting to see explosive growth, which we refer to as the Facebook for doctors. And so I would say healthcare is the next sector to be disrupted. Chris, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. My next guest is Sam Gelman, the Managing Director of Uber's Asia-Pacific region. It's almost impossible to imagine any of our listeners not having heard of Uber. But just in case, I'll remind you that Uber is a mobile app service that connects riders to drivers. Uber doesn't own any of the cars and riders pay through a credit card they've connected to the mobile app. So no cash is exchanged with the driver. Hardly a week goes by without the company being in the news for one reason or another, and quite often it's because local taxi companies stage protests when they believe Uber is encroaching on their traditional model of business. Sam joined me in our Hong Kong studios, where I asked him, what exactly did Uber disrupt, and how did technology help it achieve this? I think Uber's disrupted not just transportation and how people get around, but you're actually starting to see that we're disrupting the whole car ownership model. 
where for someone to own a car, to pay for insurance, to pay for parking, uh, it, it's increasingly less of an attractive option relative to simply using Uber to get around cities. And as our presence becomes global, you can use our platform everywhere you go to get around cheaply uh, and reliably. If Uber today were to write a book called How to Disrupt an Industry, what would you think some of the key points and takeaways would be? I think the main thing is to figure out where consumer needs are not being met. The founding of Uber was because our founders uh, couldn't get around San Francisco. They spent too much time waiting for a taxi, stuck in lines, missing time with their family. Uh, so they wanted to create a system that was better, that was more efficient, uh, that was safer uh, and more reliable. And, and that was our original founding. And we're finding that that's what we're able to do in, in every city that we go to. But I think it really stems from that core need of our founders looking at each other and saying, it doesn't really make sense that we would be waiting 45 minutes for a taxi in San Francisco to get home and see our friends on a Friday night. What was the tipping point for Uber when it went from being something that a few people were using? And it was, if I, if I remember correctly, the story was something that was used amongst about 100 people, um, the founders and their friends, to where it just exploded. What was it that uh, tipped it over? I think that we're constantly getting to new tipping points. So okay. we have the original tipping point where it became a widespread product in San Francisco, and the growth was pretty tremendous there just from the start. But then there was Uber working in New York, and then there was Uber becoming a huge product in London, and then a huge product in Vietnam. And every time, and I just say Vietnam is one of the now 50 countries that the product has taken off. So our tipping points just keep happening. And I think that's one of the things that we're surprised by is how every single place that we go, we find that transportation is a place where people want safer, more reliable, and to be frank, less expensive options. Uh, one of the great tipping points for Uber was in London when we went from being more expensive than a taxi to actually using uh, lower cost vehicles and being an option that was 40% cheaper than a taxi. And at that point, the product really took off. And you actually saw the drivers so busy and so efficient with their time that drivers were making more money, more people were not buying cars, and the entire system was more efficient. At what point do the entrepreneurs behind a disruptive innovation, and I know you can't speak of everybody, but most don't set out in the morning saying, right, today I'm going to invent something that's going to disrupt an industry, but they, they satisfy a personal need. At what point in Uber's history did they realize that they were really changing the way we were using cars? For us, it's less about disruption and it's more about our consumers being happy. It's more about the riders writing in with great feedback. It's drivers who come in and say, I'd like to be part of this platform. And when you really start getting you know, more drivers than you expect, and when the riders want to use Uber so much that there aren't enough cars on the platform for them, then you know that the status quo and what they're used to isn't meeting their needs. Uh, so it, it's more about just looking at that consumer response. Uh, and when it really just takes off, you know you're onto something and that the status quo wasn't meeting the needs of what people wanted. You talk about consumers. Um, the consumers that you also call riders around the world are generally early adopters. Is that the case everywhere? And tell us a little bit about the demographic of your riders. Sure. I, you know, it's 
originally everything starts with the early adopters. I think what's increasingly the case is that it's becoming something that everybody uses now. Uh, and it's no longer limited to uh, young professionals. I, I think we're finding that parents, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about how mothers were using Uber to send their kids to school. Uh, and it was replacing the carpool. So that parents could, you know, and then the mom can watch the car go on the app and see exactly where the child is the entire the entire time they're on the road. They have the phone number of the driver. So we're seeing all these new uh, use cases pick up. Today, I actually... Uh, my mom called me. She needed me to get something out of her apartment, and I sent an Uber to pick up the keys, uh, which saved me the need to go pick it up at, you know, where she was or for her to come to me. I just ordered an Uber. He came, and I had the keys in 15 minutes. And increasingly, these use cases are just popping up uh, more and more. What's the role of social media in Uber's case but in disruptive innovation in general? I think social media is a powerful platform, and I, I don't think it matters if you're disruptive or not. I think for any business you're running, uh, social media is a great uh, channel through which you can speak to your your, use, your users and your customers, but it's also probably one of the best and most immediate channels to hear what customers are saying. So whenever you, you know, Uber launches a new product, we get immediate feedback via social media. And building that presence just allows us to stay in very, very close touch, both with sending messages to them as well as receiving feedback. And I think without that, it would be a lot tougher for us to really understand what, you know, what the needs are out there. So communication is clearly a big part of any business, but with a business that's just starting out and that is rocking the boat in whatever industry it is, if somebody was right now listening to us thinking, I've got a great idea for the next big thing, what would you say, based on your experience, they should focus on the most? Is it communication? Is it legislation? Is it the technology aspect of it? Um, Is it getting customers? I think it's delivering a fantastic experience. If you have a great idea, find 10 people uh, who can experience that and become your advocates. I think having 100 people who love your product and are vocal about it and are out there telling your friends is far more valuable than 1,000 people who quietly use your product every day, Uh, particularly in that early jumpstart period, is figure out who your evangelists are and get to know them really well and figure out who their networks are and how you can turn them into into proponents for what you're doing and to evangelists for what you're doing. Uh, for Uber, you know, we rely so much on, on our riders and our users who, you know, who, who rely on us. And we want them to be empowered to tell other people how great Uber is, to, you know, to tell their friends and get their friends on the platform. And it's the ones who love the product that really have made it all possible. And technology is making these large-scale disruptions ever more frequent. But the media is also putting quite a lot of attention and a spotlight on not just the actual technology in the company, but the innovators themselves who are finding um, fame sometimes to be disruptive in their own disruption. For the future entrepreneur, is this something that they should take into consideration, the spotlight of the media? Because they can't really stay away from it, can it? And how much should they consider that to be a hindrance? I think, you know, for us, we just always go back to our users. And it's, are you delivering are you delivering your customers a safe, reliable, comfortable experience? Are you delivering them something they want to tell their friends about? Uh, is the product growing? And if more people are choosing Uber on a Friday night as the way that they can get home and see their kids, 
and more parents are saying, I want to use Uber because then I know I can make it home for dinner and have more time with my family instead of waiting in line for a taxi cab. Uh, if that's the case, uh, then our, you know, that's what we need to focus on. And, and the good thing for us is that through, uh, you know, through, through the entire growth period, you know, just the product, the one thing that's been consistent is that the product has grown, is the number of people choosing Uber as their reliable ride home has gone up every single week, uh, just about, you know, and, and as long as we can focus on that, we think we're in a pretty good place. Well, that's it, dear listeners, not just for this episode, but also the series 28 Tech. I'd like to thank all my guests who have shared their experiences and insight with us over the last 12 weeks. They've spoken to me from South Africa, Myanmar, New York, San Francisco, Sydney, London, and of course, Hong Kong, giving us a truly global perspective of the way technology and digital innovation have changed, improved, and disrupted industries. If you missed any episodes, you can catch up on iTunes, Stitcher, and of course, via RSS. The 28 Tech webpage, which includes the archive of past episodes, pictures and links to the topics covered, as well as our email address, can be accessed through the website www.radio3.rthk.hk. You can also find me on Twitter. I've been your host, Angelina Draper, and I wish you and your loved ones happy holidays. Sadly, there, of course, the uh, last episode in the current series of 28 Tech, produced and presented there by Angelina Draper. Coming up shortly, news at nine, after which is, of course, Candice Moore and Friends with Sunday Smile. Weather-wise, fine and dry, cool morning, up to around 19 degrees, I expect, at maximum, but it's going to get significantly cooler over the next few days, down to around 13 in the urban areas and even colder in those uh, exposed areas of the new territories. Currently 15 degrees Celsius, relative humidity 63%. Red fire danger warning is in force.